every neighborhood, there is one house that adults whisper about and children cross the street to avoid. Now, Wes Craven, creator of A Nightmare on Elm Street, takes you inside. Something's in here. But we gotta get out of here, Leroy. All sorts of rumors about what goes on in that house. The police never took it serious. She's been feeding that thing between the walls again. Very, very tense about this. There must be another way out. Can't get out. No one ever has. What goes on in this house is a sin. Your father's one sick mother, you know that? Actually, your mother's one sick mother, too. But what goes on under the stairs <laughs> is a nightmare. It is time to clean house! And welcome to the newest episode, episode two of season four of the Heart Guide Media Podcast. And as you can tell by the intro and whatever format you're listening to this on, whatever your uh, selected uh, streaming services you have read and understood and are hopefully excited that we are covering Wes Craven's 1991 classic, The People Under the Stairs. This film is something that I know that us, myself, and the people that have appeared on this um, astute uh, or not so astute podcast uh, have talked about wanting to cover this. It is one of Wes's better works, obviously, uh, his first film of the '90s, and uh, this is a good one. There's a lot to lot to cover. Um, this one's going to be a fun one, and uh, like I said, this is. Uh, a second episode of the fourth season. This is the fourth season we've been doing this. A uh, little coming up on three years come last week in August-ish. Uh, first week in September. That's about, I think, uh, we recorded the first episode the first few days in September. And uh, here we are three years later and we are still going. We are not as... Uh, I guess, productive as some other podcasts, but we get them out when we can, and it is what it is. We are going to try to keep this season weekly all the way until the season finale. Um, I'm not sure when that's going to be. I just kind of decide when I'm going to take a little break and then prep for a new season about, oh, I don't know, a few months ago, maybe a year ago, I decided to break all the episodes down into seasons, um, and yeah, here we are. Um, today we're covering. We have a lot of awesome topics uh, coming up. If you haven't heard, uh, we are also covering the Lost Boys on Legacy Week. I've revealed that um, on prior episodes already, and on social media. Uh, that will be three episodes all talking about the Lost Boys. Um, that is going to be our Legacy Week for this month. And if you're unfamiliar with Legacy Week, Legacy Week is a week in which we record uh, an episode into three parts based on one specific movie and the importance of it. Um, the For the debut 
uh, week of uh, Legacy Week for the Heart God Media Podcast. We covered 1985's The Goonies, which is a, which just turned 35 years old. Uh, pretty crazy. Uh, that one was fun. Lou Smith came on on episode three uh, and uh, did that, or episode two. It was going to be initially three episodes. It ended up being two, but this Lost Boys one should be one, or, or should be two possibly three uh we're just gonna kind of wing it there's so much to talk about with that film so it probably will be broken down into three hour and a half episodes um because that's how much i love that film it's my favorite film of all time but yes today we are here to talk about people under the stairs and there are two consummate guests that are continuously helping and uh, talking on this podcast they are brothers they are Mr. Eric Scott Tyler and Mr. Brian C. Tyler, and they will be on today talking people under the stairs. Um, like I said, this is uh, one we've been wanting to do for a while, so I hope you enjoy it. And let's, without further any any further ado, let's get into it right now. It's the first day of my 13th birthday. Could be unlucky. 13th birthday is unlucky anyway. Too old to get tit, too young to get ass. And here we are at the Heart Guide Media Podcast. People under the stairs we are finally covering after um, months of uh, trying to uh, get this done. We are in the process right now. We are doing it. So, People Under the Stairs, 1991, Wes Craven. We have Mr. Brian C. Tyler and Mr. Eric Scott Tyler here to discuss. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hello, hello. Now, this is... Um, it's interesting because this is, you know, we went into a, an odd time period for horror movies with the early 1990s. This being 91, we're at the, we're through the birthing canal of the 90s, but we are, we just got our ass smacked as far as, um, as far as where we are with Eric's dog barking. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so guys, when was the first time you saw this film? I was a child. Excellent. Uh, about you, Eric? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how old I was exactly, but uh, I know I think I watched it on television. I think with Brian, probably. I'd imagine. I don't think it was. Uh, I don't think I watched it VHS or DVD. I think it was. Uh, it was on television when I saw it. Um, obviously, I, feel, I think it was another movie Dad watched, and we were just there. Yeah, I think it was probably something along those lines. I also know, like, at the time of seeing it, I hadn't, you know, I didn't know of, uh, like, who directed it or anything like that. I obviously found that out later once I once I dove farther into the genre. But, uh, but yeah, first time I ever saw it, television, father, brother. Um, I obviously thought it was super, super creepy. I always remember uh, Everett McGill when he's in the fucking... Uh, I don't even know what you want to call it. The full leather suit always fucking freaks the shit out of me. But yeah, of course, the gimp suit. Yeah, the, the old gimp suit. Yeah. <laughs> so the yes, yeah, that's the first time I saw it. So the first time I can consciously remember seeing this was um, we were getting prepared prepared to record <clears throat> Adam's Family off HBO. And this was on right after, and I remember I fell asleep. Now this obviously this this could be incorrect, but this is my my memory as of today. 
is I fell asleep during Adam's family and didn't wake up until the end. And when Adam's family had gotten over with, people, and this is, you know, whenever this is, I don't know, 93 maybe. This is, I'm guessing, of course. But I remember it was a big thing because Adam's family, it was the first time it was airing on, like, HBO, I believe it was, or Cinemax or Showtime or wherever it was debuting. But it, uh, I had fallen asleep during, uh, you know, Adam's family, woken up at the very end and uh i remember it distinctly because there's that like hip-hop version of adam's family at the end of adam's family uh and that like we'll talk more about like the early 90s hip-hop stuff um as well but uh i remember this starting right after it and i don't remember finishing it but i remember watching some of it then and then you know as time went on i i was you know enamored with the the cover art once I saw it in rental stores and uh so it had been Im- Im- implemented in me in that early age but I probably didn't see the full thing until probably a, a few years later when I was probably you know I don't know seven eight years old is when I probably fully watched the movie but I remember that specifically in thinking about you know the name the title seeing the actor seeing some scenes so that was my, I guess, my introduction, even though I probably didn't finish the entire thing until a year or two, three later. Um, but, uh, of course, the, the cover art is very legendary, too, as far as uh, if you walked into video stores in the 1990s. Um, it was just one of those uh, one of those memorable VHS covers, for sure. But we have uh, a pretty uh, interesting and, uh, and cool cast here with Brandon Quentin Adams playing Fool. Uh, Everett McGill playing man, a.k.a. daddy. Uh, Wendy Roby playing woman, a.k.a. mommy. Uh, A.J. Langer playing Alice. Ving Rames as Leroy. Sean Whalen as Roach. Bill Cobbs as Grandpa Booker. Kelly Joe Minter as Ruby Williams, Fool's sister. Jeremy Roberts as Spencer. And uh, the rest of the cast kind of falls in there. Of course, Jan Birch as uh, the Stairmaster. And then Mike, Michael uh, Coppolo, uh, a stair person, too, who was also in Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead of the same year. He was also in The Stoned Age and also in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, small role in there in 92. So the early 90s are packed with a lot of uh, familiar faces and a lot of fun stuff. Uh, so let's, uh, let's dive right in. Uh, so the, the movie starts with uh, tarot card reading that uh ruby and fool are reading to each other and uh we get introduced i mean i mean her voice is pretty recognizable we get introduced to uh ruby fool's sister uh kelly joe minter uh a face of the late 80s and early 90s for sure oh yeah a lot of a lot of memorable stuff you may remember from summer school maybe that deleted scene and i think her face does appear for maybe three seconds, and of course, R.I.P. Joel Schumacher, uh, the Lost Boys, a few years earlier, and she is just uh, she had carved herself out a, a fun little uh, niche in the uh, genre film, or you know, more lower budget film, uh, I guess uh, genre, as it were, uh, during this time period. But uh, we quickly realize that you know they're lo- living in low income house. Um, their rents due, they're in financial despair, and their fool and Ruby's mother is sick. 
We're also introduced to Leroy, played by the one, the only, Ving Rhames. And uh, he is, um, you know, kind of like the smooth-talking boyfriend. He's classified as a friend of Ruby's, but we know know what he's doing. (laughs) For sure, boyfriend. Now, this is uh, Ving Rhames, one of his first roles as well, too, right? Yeah, I believe it, it, it. I believe he had done some TV before this, but I think this is his first bigger film. I, I believe maybe he showed up in a few films before this. I'm honestly not really sure. We're gonna take a look. Of course, he goes on to to play in you know things genre related. I mean, of course, he he goes in to be in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, but. Uh, horror fans probably would remember him from Dawn of the Dead 2004, uh, Piranha 3D, uh, of course, uh, probably one of his most well-known roles as um, Marcellus Wallace in uh, Quentin Tarantino's 1994 Pulp Fiction. He was in this great movie called The Long Walk Home, where he played the husband of Whoopi Goldberg. That sounds great. He was also in, um, he was in uh, a movie I love called uh, Bound by Honor. The alternative title is Blood In, Blood Out. I love that film. Um, he was also in uh, Mission Impossible, of course. Con Air. Uh, obviously, been in a lot of films. And he was also, before this, he was also in Jacob's Ladder. Um, but he had done some TV and some smaller films. But nothing really of note until, you know, obviously working on uh, uh, Jacob's Ladder is is pretty um, noteworthy for sure. But as far as working with like a, a pretty decent sized um, director, especially someone that was as big as Wes Craven was at that point, obviously Jacob's Ladder uh, being a, a successful film as well, but uh, Ving Rhames... Uh, we, we, I'm glad we could spend a moment to talk about his filmography because he is—he's uh, kind of one of those faces that we forget about how much, uh, how much uh, cool shit he's been in. And this is uh, maybe one of my favorite roles of his as uh, as Leroy. Yeah, I mean, Ving Rhames. Obviously, I think everyone kind of knows who he is, and uh, I always like it when you see these actors who have these extensive uh, careers on many different genres but they they have that one maybe or, or a couple notable uh i guess horror uh roles and i think it's really cool and this is one of them for him and and you know um so many actors have started off uh who maybe didn't necessarily have a lot of genre films but they have that one like horror film at the beginning of their career and it's really cool that uh, he has one yeah for sure so uh but we find out, obviously, their mother's sick, and even before it's kind of uh, outed, you know, you can already tell that it's it's cancer, um, and they're getting evicted, and that, uh, y- you know, that the the people who own the liquor store own all these houses. They we end up getting into that as well. But it cuts to a scene where uh, man, aka Daddy, Daddy played by Everett McGill, is eating a, a rack of ribs, and he's picking buckshot out of it now. I always assumed at the beginning you just think it's probably like a rack of ribs from a cow or something like that, but you slowly start to think, is that a rack of ribs from a human? Why? Oh, for sure. some reason the idea of shooting a cow, 
that was more ridiculous to me than than shooting and eating a human. Well, thank you. Chew on that. I mean, I can see that, but those are, yeah, definitely human riffs. Yeah. Well, there we go. And, uh, and Mommy is talking about how there's one last family in this apartment building. And then they can they can demolish it. They can bring in the wrecking ball, and then that's it. And we kind of we get a glimpse of Alice and Alice. You know what what happens to the people when they get kicked out of their homes? And mommy shuts her down and tells her to you know kick rocks, get the fuck out of here, speak when spoken to you, little bitch. Um, so they're already you can already see that it's a very domineering household for Alice, and she really. Uh, it's a it's a struggle you can already see, and Everett McGill is just chewing on a a rack of John, and and just it's uh, picking buckshot out, and it's a it's a pretty visceral scene, even without even explaining too much, other than they own the liquor store, and uh, they own uh, apartment building, and they're gonna try to level it to you know make way for whatever the fuck they want to, and uh, and uh, so. Then we go back to uh, Leroy, and Leroy obviously is plotting and trying to get Fool on board and let him know, like, listen, this is the only way we're gonna. Some people deserve to be robbed, is what he actually says. So, uh, and then he, you know, mentions that uh, these landlords have gold coins. They have, you know, they have a lot of money. They have uh, the the lure is that they have gold, and. Uh, it's pretty, uh, you know, it, that's where he pretty much is laying it down. Like, this, do you want your mother to die? Do you want to get, do you want to be homeless? Like, this is what we're doing. So he kind of takes the role of a father figure to fool, albeit, you know, somewhat criminalistic, but, I mean, <laughs> maybe some uh, do-criminalistic activity uh, that is uh, justified uh, once you figure out who they're going to be criminalizing and, and burglarizing it as it were, but we get more on Alice, Alice, uh, in the room and you mother comes, you know, mommy comes and, uh, is coming to collect her, her dinner plate. And, uh, she's missing a fork. We see a hand come out through the ventilation and give the fork back. And she already knows that she's been feeding that thing in the wall. Hasn't she? Um, and then, uh, yeah, so before we're introduced introduced to the character of Roach, played by Sean Whalen, yeah, we get a little taste and a little uh, precursor to, uh, you know, there's a there's a loose uh, person and or thing in the wall, and Alice has been feeding him. And uh, Daddy comes up with a very severe tension headache, Brian, and he has uh, just notified that the liquor store has been robbed. And he has a very, uh, he's very tense, he says. He's got a headache. And then uh, when Mommy lets him know that uh, Roach is being fed, the Roach that we don't know is Roach yet, but the person in the wall, uh, Daddy takes his belt off and little girls, or bad little girls burn in hell. And he's going to, he's going to belt the shit out of Alice, unfortunately for her. Uh, She's got to deal with this psychotic who has played so, uh, perfectly by the one the only everett mcgill i'm not sure anybody could have pulled every role that everett mcgill is in i feel like no one can play the characters that he plays the way he plays them absolutely not it's blasphemous to even think so to even entertain the idea and of i like course- how they build like uh you have no like 
you obviously uh, they allude to something fucked up is going on, but you don't really know exactly what. So when you see the hand, like you think, like who is that? Is that like a is that is like that a brother? Yeah, yeah. You, uh, Hillary you, Swank. you like you have no idea. So. Did you say Hillary Swank? Yeah, remember <laughs> Hillary yeah. Swank almost got the role of Roach. Yes, yes, Hillary Swank. It, it, in I case, wish... in case anybody's wondering, we recorded this episode once already, but I had uh, the computer had uh, been uh, shut off before it was saved, so this is a re-record, actually. I would like to be in um, the room when I, they came down to like who was reading for the part or who was doing whatever for the part, because obviously we know that. There's no lines for that uh, character, but like it came down to Hillary and, and Sean Wayland. Yeah. I don't know. It must, have been, it must have been interesting for sure. When oh, we absolutely. have Sean Wayland on the show, we'll ask him. Oh, yeah, seriously. Um, so uh, then we get. interview Sean Whalen? Shout out to Sean Whalen. Maybe we will. Sean Whalen runs a great TikTok and. Uh, uh, as I've told you guys, uh, he posts a lot of stories about movies he was on, and he actually does. He did post a, a a letter that Wes had written him after the film, saying how much he loved what he brought to the character of Roach and, and what a pleasure it was to work with him, and that he hopes to work with him again. And it was a note that Wes wrote Sean after the uh, filming of the movie. So I thought that was really cool that Sean Whalen uh, shared that. Yeah, that is really cool. I mean, it speaks to uh, to Wes's character, uh, of course, and we'll get into that later on. But, uh, you know, then we're introduced to, you know, we get Fool, Spencer, and Leroy in a van. Spencer is uh, their, um, their white Robin uh, manning the uh, steering wheel in this very creepy-esque pedo van. Uh, and uh, Fool's, Fool ends up in a Cub Scout uniform uh, trying to convince... Uh, Wendy Roby, a.k.a. Mommy, uh, convince Mommy that he's got to go in there and take a leak. They leave us out here all day. Um, and she doesn't want cookies. She could give a fuck about cerebral palsy. She don't give a shit. So she closes the door on his face and uh, comes back, and, and Spencer, Spencer's got an alternative idea, so he goes there as the Metro Gas Man. And... Uh, you know, she notices, and I, I think maybe this might have been a, a giveaway that she may have known something was up as well. When she sees the skull ring on Spencer's uh, hand, she ends up letting him in because Spencer says, you know, we can check the meter in your house. Uh, you know, there, I don't, we can get police force if needed, but we've never had to do that. And of course, he gets in. And uh, we get. A succession of amazing Leroy quotes, all within about 12 minutes. So they're talking about what's taking Spencer so long, and they, uh, <laughs> Leroy makes, uh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe something's wrong with Spencer in there, and, or maybe he's just looking around. And, uh, Leroy's obviously getting curious as to why Spencer's taking so long, says he's slippery as a snake. And where all these maybes are getting thrown out, Leroy so elegantly says, well, maybe the president's making me the secretary of pussy. Classic, uh, yeah. classic lines written there. Yeah, sure. I, I feel like definitely uh, s some comedic lines of the time uh, that were, you know, probably would fall on uh, deaf ears for uh, certain horror fans now, but I, I, I still find it comedic because it's a sign of like 
just like I don't know, there was a I guess there was a vulgarness that they're trying to display here, but I thought that was uh, hilarious. It was just so it was so random because you would have never expected that line to uh, to come. And uh, Leroy and uh, Fool see mommy leave, and they go into popping this house's cherry, as Leroy so elegantly puts it as well. Um, and before uh, we get that line, though, he get we get. The are you guys both still there? You're Yeah, we're here. We're here. Brian? Yeah. Are you sure, Brian? Do you want me to um talk into what you're saying? Yeah, I want you to I want your opinion when uh Fool says this is my first day of my thirteenth birthday, so we find out that it's Fool's thirteenth birthday. And he says, uh you know, this is gonna be unlucky. And <laughs> Leroy says 13's unlucky anyway. Too old to get tit, too young to get ass. <laughs> that line, um, when I most recently... Well, the first time I really noticed it, I'm like, that's fucking... It's hilarious, okay? Yes, uh, and then uh, uh, we quickly get introduced to Prince the dog, a Rottweiler. I, Have you guys ever had any encounters with Rottweilers ever? Never. Not that I can recall. Definitely not one named after one of the greatest pop artists of uh, the 80s, for sure. <laughs> you think that they they named him after the pop artist? I would. I mean, if they, if you couldn't tell already, these people are, by this point in the movie, you could tell that these people are pretty racist. But, I mean, it's not far-fetched that they were big purple rain marks when the album came out a few years prior. Yeah, you can be a Prince fan and still be racist. Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of them out there. BT I, got bit by a dog named Little Richard once. <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> Wait, was that the white dog? BT, confirm or deny? I can't confirm it. But you won't deny it. I don't think I've ever been bit by a dog, like seriously bit by a dog. Ever. I mean, I still feel for Prince even when he meets his demise. Even though he was, he was just doing what was. He's just protecting the home. Yeah, I mean, I just feel really bad for him. That's how he. Yeah, that's how he was trained. You know, he didn't know any better. And uh, so we get introduced to to Prince, of course, and, and Prince uh, attacks them. He bites the piss out of Leroy's arm. Leroy's also got Leroy's garb in this is pretty fucking amazing. He's got these faded black jeans. He's got a black denim vest with like the the like African tribe colors on the shoulders and then he's wearing the um the headpiece, the matching headpiece. And he's yeah, wearing he's like these the sick black guy, right? like combat boots and he just looks like fly as fuck. He really does. And was... what? I just wanted to know what went into, you know, how like the Sometimes when they when they uh, do the uh, clothing uh, for movies, like a lot goes into the characters, like what they're wearing. I just wonder what the backstory about that was. I don't know, just random, but I always felt like in in most of Wes's films, the the costume designs didn't look like overblown. They didn't look crazy. They didn't look too wild. Like in the '80s movies that Wes did, and even in the '70s, they didn't look like exploitative. Or, like, unrealistic. I feel like there was a good pulse on what the fashion sense was at the time without it seeming so over the top. Right. 
And uh, yeah, I don't think there's any outrageous looking stuff in any of his any of his films. So after they uh, they trap Prince, um, they spread out and start looking around, and fools in the basement and finds. Uh, of course, we're the Desert Storm War is on at the time, and it's on the TV that's faced into. He's in the basement, and he finds the TV uh, with the Desert Storm coverage on, faced inside the other side of the wall under the stairs in the basement. And uh, then uh, the the lights and the people under the stairs. You see people on the other side with the lights, and then he trips over Spencer. Um, you see Spencer is turned white as a ghost. We know Wes that, you know, he likes the hair changing in movie, the hair color changing in movies because you've been so frightened. Happened in Nightmare on Elm Street with Nancy. <laughs> you scared the color out of your hair. Scared the, I, and I love that uh, a few scenes later, uh, Fool goes, you thought he was white before? You should see that sucker now. <laughs> uh, just a uh, classic, classic uh lines but he is snow white and then you see that his hands been chewed because it was under the thing and then he find it was under the other side of the wall and you fool finds the gold coin in spencer's hand so he knows you know where there's smoke there's fire and spencer has a gold coin uh in his hand and then uh and yeah and then uh fool ends up getting scared by roach chased up to the top of the stairs where alice opens the door and Fool meets Alice, um, not formally, but knows that there's a child in there. And now Fool does. And uh, Mommy and Daddy get home uh, to uh, try to let Prince in. They they figure out quickly, obviously, with the Spencer's van parked there, that someone's inside. And the, the door in the living room or the dining room or the front of the house, whatever you want to call it, is electrified, Home Alone style. And Fool gets shocked, and that is uh, ultimately how they shock the shit out of poor Prince. Uh, Prince just doing his job, of course. The dog comes after him, and they, they do a chain of electric electrocution <laughs> to the dog, which yeah, is, uh, uh, you know, it gets, this movie actually gets pretty slapsticky for a horror movie. Yeah, I think, I think throughout the entire thing, is, even though there's some extremely fucked up things happening, uh, it definitely keeps an element of humor to it, for sure. It's a bit like Home Alone, in a way. Yeah. But a very, very twisted, twisted Home Alone. But in a way, I feel like a lot of it, like Wes Graven sort of went back to like what he always used to put in his films, like with booby traps and shit. Oh, yeah, for sure. And like, yeah, putting mostly the bad guys through situations like that. And uh, something I missed in his later movies. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Fool ends up uh, meeting Alice, and Alice explains the people under the stairs. You know, they're, they're people that they wanted to find the perfect son, perfect boy counterpart to Alice, and they heard evil, they spoke evil, or they uh, saw evil, and they cut out the bad parts, threw them in the basement, threw them under the stairs. Uh, so, uh,. And then we see once they find Prince uh, shocked. Did they find him shocked? I can't remember. I think they. I can't remember if they do. But regardless, Daddy gets gimped I think up. I'm, yeah, I think to Daddy or whatever. Or so da- Daddy gets gimped up, which would have been an amazing alternative <laughs> title to this. Daddy gets gimped up. 
Oh, my God. So, uh, for some reason, uh, actually, he doesn't get gimped up before he shoots, uh, I think, right? No, no, he, he does get gimped up first, right? Yeah, he gets gimped up. And he's hunting, and he's hunting, uh, Roach. Wait, did I, did I skimped up? No, I think I, oh, sorry. I might have skipped a part, because I'm reading off my trade, notes here. Can we trade that gimped up, please? <laughs> <laughs> gimped up could mean so many things, but ultimately we know what it actually means. What terrible luck Ving Rames has had with, with Gimps. Oh, Just, yeah. he's, he's definitely over for two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think when Daddy kills him, he's not Gimped up, though, right? No, I don't think he's Gimped up at that point. Yeah, fool. Yeah, but but uh, so the cops show up uh with the van. Uh, sitting in there, and they they notify that mo- to mommy and daddy that the uh, liquor store has been robbed in a van that fits this description. And then uh, they find the uh, the Cub Scout uniform in the van, and find out that fools inside that there was three of them. And right. then uh, so old daddy continues the hunt, and daddy gets uh, cracked in the head by fool. And uh, Roach then grabs Fool from into the wall, uh, where we see a good whole face shot of uh, Sean Whalen and all of his Sean Whalen glory. And uh, they get a, and then he, you know, that's when he finds out that Roach is um, that Roach is, uh, you know, a friend. He is, he is uh, an ally. Trying to help him, yeah. Trying to help him and. As he navigates his way through this house, uh, Roach has all these his own ways of how he deals with things on a day to day basis, whether it be routes and avoiding uh, man and woman there. But uh but uh Leroy is, is shot and killed and falls down the stairs. Um and then uh so during that time uh, the, uh, there's an Alice meetup with Alice, Roach, and Fool, and that's where Alice drops and and explains, uh, and explains like, okay, Roach's Roach, you know, w- you know, trying to figure out what the hell Roach's gimmick is, like what what's Roach's deal. Sees Roach has re- reveals that he has his tongue cut out for calling for help. Uh, and Alice, you know, we we get more information on Alice. She makes the dolls of the burglars. So that's the, all these voodoo-esque looking dolls that are around the house that are being pulled around. Alice is making them for burglars, salesmen, anybody who get, encounters, you know, the, the fateful uh, demise of mommy and daddy. Uh, and then uh, fools then, um, daddy ends up shooting Roach, barging in and shoots Roach as he's crawling back into the vent holes. And uh, fools thrown down in the basement and then uh, Alice is thrown into Leroy's blood and forced to clean up his blood so she like slides on her nightgown in his blood it's just it's pretty visceral to watch and then uh it's pretty you know fools thrown down into the uh people under the stairs and uh it's pretty uh pretty visceral you know alice gets thrown uh after getting thrown in the blood uh you know daddy's skinning leroy downstairs while he's got fool tied up and he's feeding parts of Leroy to the people under the stairs, saying he likes to keep them real hungry. 
ends up throwing fool into the people with the people under the stairs, but they do not. They uh they 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 know that fool's an ally as well. So there's some there's some kinship there, and they you know they they they're trying to their best to help him because I'm, I imagine they're trying to get themselves out of this. Or aren't they all about the same thing? They all want to get the hell out of that place. Meanwhile, uh, was Alice taking a scolding hot bath? Yeah, that was uh that was I don't know why, but that was like the the hardest thing to watch. I I know that sounds weird, but it was just like the weirdest and like most uncomfortable thing to watch. In the whole film. A hundred percent agree with you. For sure. You know, you just have this psychotic woman throwing her supposed daughter in a scolding hot bath. And you see her skin. Obviously, this is a movie, but you know shit like this happens in real life. That's what makes it, I think, so uh, real and visceral. And, and Wes has always been great at that. You see her skin's like bright red when she gets out of the... When she gets out of the uh, the bathtub, did that? Now, did this scene ever have any kind of effect on you, Brian? Did this read as visceral to you as it does to Eric and I? Yeah, I yeah, I kind of got buried my voice, but yeah, I totally agree with you guys. I think it's probably the most uncomfortable scene in the movie, possibly. And I bet you just they just, didn't they didn't even the intend for that. How they like how they parent her? It's just all obviously it's all super weird. It reminds me of, you know, what what Joan Crawford maybe did to her kids, or you know what. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's no denying that this happens, and you know, not even you know, famous people. Uh, or you know, this happens all over the United States, all over the world. Uh, but then when you see it on film like that, you start thinking like, oh shit, there are kids that are treated this terribly and uh it was pretty visceral to watch it was pretty uh uh uncomfortable for sure but uh roach ends up uh you know finding uh fool in the basement i, I we we had talked about this and it's very like odd and weird and uncomfortable but he lifts leroy's body out of the the pit that daddy threw him in and uh is like making moaning sounds and it's like comical but it's also like disturbing because it's leroy's corpse uh, and it scares the it scares the people under the stairs away, and and then Fool and and Roach are reunited in the uh, furnace, where unfortunately Roach uh, short lived but very memorable memorable role in this film. Uh, you know, spells out Alice on the ash and lets him know that Alice is up. You gotta go up. Um, but we see, you know, Roach actually doesn't have like a, a huge part in this movie, but it feels like it's huge. Yeah, I mean, I think it, he plays like an integral role, obviously. With the, he's like the 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 inside uh, ally, like you said. I mean, well, him and him, him and Alice, but he knows uh, how to navigate through the house and how to help. So, right. If it wasn't for him, Fool might still be in that basement. Fool might be one of the people under the stairs. Exactly. He'd still be there today. That's right. And the. Uh... We see, you know, when, when Fool gets under the stairs, we see the people in there. And we've we've talked about this uh, as well. Uh, I, I said that a lot of the people under the stairs, you get, you got Jan Birch, uh, you, look, you got Michael Coppolo, and a couple other guys. But they all look like uh, Kenny's friends from Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. <laughs> they for sure do. An actual hellhound, hellhound from the movie is actually there. They're all like long hairs. <laughs> They all bought peace cells when it came out, and then they unfortunately got adopted by mommy and daddy, and uh, 
they never got to I see so far so good so what i haven't seen that movie since i was a kid i would love to watch that again oh another classic they just actually put the soundtrack out on vinyl on a on a on a clown dog uh fl- clown dog uh colored variant oh that's great and the clown uh, dog is a color well the the clown dog uh it's like you know the place that uh oh, no. i get it i remember yeah, it was yellow with like a, a brown red f- like splatter, and it was the clown dog variant. Um, but it actually the uh, insert sleeve, the like paper sleeve that holds the record, is actually looks like the the burger wrappings for the clown dog too. Oh wow, that's rad! And then there, I think believe it comes in uh, red too. Is the I'm right on top of that rose red variant. <laughs> I think they should have done a Metallica Breath Green, actually. That's how that's how huge soundtracks are. They're putting out the goddamn soundtrack for Don't Tell Mom the <laughs> Yeah. In a perfect <laughs> world. Which that song is also in fucking Son-in-Law. When, oh, shit, it is. Yeah, with Becca and, and Crawler on the beach. Yeah. Becca, yeah, Travis. <laughs> Oh, uh, the early '90s were such a goddamn treat. Um, but you know, Pr- Prince is then killed in the wall when Daddy is gimped up again, hunting fool, and uh, and then we get the the Everett McGill dance number and song number. The oh, I got him, I got him, I got him, I got him, I got him. <laughs> and uh, again with the with the slapstick, like we talked about. Prove it. And they go, and, and poor Prince has been fucking shot. For, by fucking daddy shot his own dog, the dumb prick. And so Prince, R.I.P., dies shortly after Roach. Terrible. The two most tragic deaths. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe uh, Prince got impaled. Yeah, that's correct. He didn't get shiz out. He got, he got, he got impaled the fucking with the gun or the bayonet or whatever the fuck daddy was running around with but regardless r.i.p prince and uh fool escapes uh you know out of the the top out of the uh the attic uh unfortunately try fails to get alice out as well jumps into the pond he gets out shows the coins to his sister and bill cobbs the grandpa booker character uh, Bill Cobbs is just great. Obviously, uh, a landmark uh, and very famous and memorable actor, but plays Grandpa Booker with, uh, and uh, you know, shows him the the coin. Says, you know, listen, you got enough money here to pay your rent until two thousand, and you also uh, you can pay for your mother's surgery. So. And they talk about how the family is, how fucked up the family is. It says, you know, they're not uh, husband and wife, they're brother and sister. Which and, is, and that they, know. yeah, it's, I mean, it, we see it gets more twisted as this story goes on. So it's a few, they used to own a funeral home business that would sell cheap shit to people, cheap coffins. They, they just got more greedy and crazier. So it's a weird, fam- fucked up family dynamic here, and a lot of like hillbilly hick shit going on right in an inner city or the outskirts of an inner city. Um, you know, they just bought up more land, and 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 it's uh, pretty crazy. Fool ends up calling uh, Department of Social Services, gets people over there to investigate to see if there are children over there that are being abused, as he claims. 
Uh, and then we get another, I don't want to see another cop or cookie as long as I live. Uh, but yeah, so they pretty much lie. You know, Everett McGill's hiding all the gimp, the gimp, the gimp props in the wall and shit. Looking like fucking, uh, looking like Bert from Tremors with like a weird Atlanta Hawks fucking dad hat on. It wasn't an Atlanta yeah, Hawks that, hat, but it looked like it. The scenes where they try to play normal people are pretty great as well. Uh, yeah, they, I mean, we as we've uh, we've been talking about how great the the cast is. Uh, Everett McGill and Wendy Roby uh, obviously cast from this because Wes loved them in Twin Peaks, and they they got the these roles because of their chemistry and how great they were on Twin Peaks. And this was, uh, again, another another show that was a product of the early 90s. Uh, and, I, and I know, I understand, we're all Twin Peaks fans, right? Uh, of course, Brian is. Eric, you're a Twin Peaks fan, right? Yeah, for sure. And uh, so that was another show we showed. But, yeah, that was, uh, you know, uh, that whole show was very inspirational in getting uh, – people cast in other movies obviously twin peaks was relatively short-lived but we got a lot of great people that were getting great roles and obviously wendy roby everett mcgill were acting and stuff before this but uh you know they got the people under the stairs gig based right off the the twin peaks uh the twin peaks show so uh i do like that west was a twin peaks fan obviously it's not surprising but i like that you know when you hear about like other directors appreciating other directors work um, especially as how how great Twin Peaks was, you know, we wouldn't have got Everett McGill or Wendy Roby because of that. Yeah, and I can't imagine the movie any other way. Yeah, and uh, so the police don't take the investigation uh, serious. Obviously, uh, they're pretty convincing to them. They investigate the house. They don't see anything. Uh, and they hide Alice uh, downstairs, and Fool obviously comes back uh, when the investigation was going on. He finds Alice, um, well, he faces off with uh, Mommy, and he gets downstairs uh, and sees Alice uh, tied up to the wall. And uh, a really another, probably the second most disturbing scene in the film, uh when alice comes down there when daddy comes down there and is looking for fool all gimped up uh he uh she's like please let me down and he grabs his crotch and you guys i mean i i I just it was so fucking disturbing just it was very subtle but it was very disturbing yeah i mean like i said the the way they allude to the dynamic of the family is really twisted. And, and, uh, you gotta think that there was some probably extremely, they allude to extremely messed up things that were happening that they didn't obviously put on in the film because, uh, maybe they wanted you to just come up with it yourself, but, uh, super twisted dynamic of, uh, of the parental figures. Oh yeah. So, uh, and then you know fool's making his way through the house uh and the house is goonied right up there's all a data's booby traps throughout the entire fucking house uh there's dynamite fucking everywhere fucking jan birch is trying to fucking let him know that the the that the uh the safe area is gimmicked with the the alarm system and uh it's pretty uh it's pretty fucked up and 
and uh, obviously Fool's come, Fool makes his way back here to save Alice, which is pretty an ingenious plan to call the Department of Social Services and then get um and then get the cops to go over there. Opens the house right up. Cops are walking in and out. Fool was able to sneak in, and he gets back inside thinking that they would probably hide everything from the cops and he gets back in to save Alice. It's pretty ingenious. Uh, props to uh, fool for being that smart. And then uh, we uh, get a, we get a, a rap on the door and we see that it is uh, his sister. Old, uh, old Ruby is back. And then Bill Cobb is there and uh, she's about ready to freaking drop some very, uh, some very vulgar language when she sees an entire community of everybody, everybody that lives in that community, black, white, brown, everybody is out there. And she stops right in her tracks and realizes that she's uh, she's gonna be fucked. And we get uh, Alice dropping down out of the uh, out of the top like fucking uh, like one of the Angela's cats in that in the Office Super Bowl episode, and uh, smashes her head on there. And there's a, obviously a little a go at it between Alice and mommy and. And uh, the uh, the people under the stairs uh, save Alice. Jan Birch comes out from under the stairs, uh, literally, and uh, saves Alice. And then we get we get Hellhound. We get we get them all. We we get uh, a kid that's wearing like some fucked up mask. Uh, we get all the people under the stairs. All the all the all the house painting. Uh, you know, weed smoking out of a crushed Budweiser can uh, thrash metal kids out to uh, save Alice, and they take down Mommy. Kind of, uh, yeah, the perfect... I, I love the, the scene when you see them uh, ascending into uh, freedom, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, Fool ends up going on to, to blow up uh, Everett McGill in the in the where all the the coins and all the money and all the all the the riches that they've saved and, and that have hoarded he blows uh blows daddy up so now daddy's dead too and uh there's just money spewing from the chimney that's going everywhere and we get the liberation of the people under the stairs they're they're free they're smelling Jan Birch is smelling the air they're going to fucking they're going down to wherever they're going to to you know, countdown to extinctions probably coming out in another nine months. <laughs> Jesus, they're picking up rust in peace. They got to catch up on that. Oh, but... Yeah, I mean, I think this. I mean, I know we're gonna get into more about like what the film means, but you know, it's it's we both know like we are we all know like how much uh, West puts into these movies and what all the hidden hidden meanings in this film. So. Yeah, and uh, you know Wes, uh, we we've talked about Wes and George, and we've talked many times about um, about both of their how their films speak to people, and and that they're always saying something. I think both of them have always been unintentional and intentional with uh, what their films say. And I think a lot of the times they're just making a film and trying to say something that they want to say. It just happens to speak to many people and speak to a lot of the issues that are going on in the world. For sure. I mean, this film obviously speaks to a lot of things. I mean, the gentrification and the class war of, 
you know, the rich and the poor. Yep, redlining I mean, in cities, and it's uh. Yeah, I think this that's like the main thing that I think, and then obviously the, you know, it even touches on, like we said, with the abuse, like child the, abuse, the, yeah, child abuse, parental abuse, and then I think even just like at its core, like the. I think every town or whatever has like that one like house where there's weird people who live at and you kind of delve into like the, you know, I don't know, the myths of that, of like, Oh, like these people are this and these people are that. And, and it's the same thing with the, with this house, creepy house, creepy family. And it turns out, yes, they are in fact straight nut jobs. Oh yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing. It touches on so many different things. And I think you could you could immediately try to write this off and be like, you know, Wes was tr- just simply trying to show the gentrific- gentrification and he was trying to show, like, you know, uh, racism and how, you know, cops don't believe, uh, wouldn't believe something that they would say, but they wouldn't, they definitely wouldn't believe, like, a white couple living in this, the, you know, all this. But he speaks on so many different levels to child abuse. Uh, to, you know, not taking, it's something Wes has had in almost all of his films too, is not taking kids serious. Um, and how he thinks that kids should be respected as people and not, you know, treated like they were, they were less than because they're kids. He, he, he gets on that in Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, big time as well, you know? Yeah, definitely. Where, you know, you need to listen to the youth because... They may know something that you don't, and if you don't listen to them, you could, uh, you know, someone could be, you know, in trouble and, and the points missed because they're a child. Wes talks about that in many, many films, and, and he touches upon it specifically in Nightmare on Elm Street, um, even though in that the parents do know, um, some of the parents do know, but um, yeah, it's a... Uh, you know, in Wes and George, more so than any of them. But you can look back. You know, horror is such an interesting thing. And when we talk the the four the four masters of horror, Toby with the same thing. Toby dived into a fucked up family dynamic too with uh, with Texas Chainsaw Massacre years before. Extremely fucked up family stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, yeah like I mean, uh, like we said, I think all. I think people sometimes view horror as mindless. Uh, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of mindless films, but like I said, I think the true masters uh, and a lot of their films had something to say. Uh, like you said, sometimes it was uh, sometimes it was deliberate and sometimes it was undeliberate. So. But it always, uh, it never, and I feel like, especially times like that, I feel like movies, some movies that come out now that tackle uh, topics of race and things like that. I feel like some horror fans will will take that as pandering and they'll be turned off by say a Jordan Peele's um, Jordan Peele's movies. But at the same time, like I feel like when you touch upon not just one specific thing, but you you underline and you highlight different things. Like Wes was Wes was tackling race big time in this, but Wes was also attacking child abuse. Like it, it's all like a structured system of of. Uh, you know, abuse, be it racial, be it child, uh, be it, you know, class, 
uh, a class dispute or anything like that. It's all really relatively tied together. It's just tiered differently. And and Wes, uh, obviously being a scholar, he was a he was a professor at Clarkson University in upstate New York. The guy was very knowledgeable on these things, and uh, but he was always grounded. He never he never wanted to appear above anyone, and he never did. Wes was. Uh, and Wes is my favorite director, and it's really hard sometimes for me to say that just because I love George so much, I love Toby so much, I love John Carpenter so much, but Wes, for some reason, I know Brian uh, probably agrees with me, he, he just kind of does something for me a little tiny bit more than the others, and, and that's not taking anything away from them. Creepshow, one of my favorite movies of all time. The Thing, one of my favorite movies of all time. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. One of my favorite movies of all time. Um, but for some reason, Wes always, I think, spoke to his audience a little tiny bit more. Yeah, I can... Uh, well, I can't quite put my finger on the reason that he's my favorite because I really think they're all like geniuses. 100%. But Wes Craven, for some reason, his movies just speak to me more. Um. Yeah. So this movie, and a lot of it, some of it is nostalgia too, because a lot of Wes Craven's movies, I just tended to watch them more when I was younger than I did, you know, John Carpenter's or. Well, that's not true either. I'm contradicting myself. I just love Wes Craven. <laughs> well, we can all admit that he's, uh, he's one of the greatest ever. So. Oh, by I, far. Uh, plays a role in it too was just him as a person um obviously they were all great people are great people some of them are still alive <laughs> but Wes Craven's personality I just drive with more I mean one 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 it's kind of sad one of them is still alive yeah one one of the four it's uh it's tragic so this movie ended up opening on November 1st the day after Halloween actually on uh, November 1st, 1991, uh, the film cost about $6 million to make, and the opening weekend was 5.5 and some change. So it almost made its money back that opening weekend. It ended up grossing 24.2 in uh, the United States, making it a successful film. Uh, you know, that's four times the budget. You need to be three times to be considered profitable. And uh, their worldwide gross, they grossed about... Uh, about a little more than six million more than that at thirty one point three million. Uh, so the film was a success. It was a success for Wes. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I didn't obviously. I was like six when this came out, so I did. I, I, that was one thing I did look at to see how it did in like the box office. And I was quite shocked, actually. I mean, I, I, I guess you never know how some of these cult classics or like these cult movies do uh, in the theaters. Especially the ones that were when we were too young or before our time, but yeah, I think obviously maybe you know Wes's name, and then you know going into like you said the Halloween season probably helped a bit. I know I you know I read that this was number one for quite a while in the theaters. So yeah, um, I mean, I mean Wes more so than John Carpenter, and and obviously Toby and George. Uh, Wes was probably the biggest director, directed the biggest budget films. Wes always worked within the studio system, and John Carpenter did, but he was kind of his own maverick, and Toby, same, was very mavericky, and George was the ultimate maverick that, uh, you know, 
uh, tried to avoid studios when possible, um, especially later on in his career. Uh, but Wes, uh, Wes somehow was able to navigate and get his his stamp uh, of uh, cravenness on a lot of the projects he worked on. And while he did have a lot of issues with the studios, as you do when you're working in horror, especially at the time period, uh, Wes was definitely like the the best well known name, obviously. Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise was so huge, and Wes's name ha- was and still is, obviously, to this day, uh, synonymous with the, the franchise. So that definitely helped. Um, and uh, just so many great uh, performances in this, from A.J. Langer as Alice, uh, Wendy Roby, Everett McGill as Man and Woman, uh, you know Brian uh, Quentin Adams, who went on to be in the Mighty Ducks films, uh, Sandlot, uh, a lot of great acting in this, but who would you say stole the show, each one of you? What what person stole the show for you? Everett McGill and Wendy Roby. Yeah, I mean, Everett McGill probably for me, just because I, I mean, I just, he's such a, he's, had, he's such a commanding uh, presence, I guess you could say, and like his role, he's just, he just absolutely kills it, just, I mean, I don't know if anybody else could play that role, and uh, he really knocks it out of the park, of course. So I would, uh, I would give it to. Uh, I mean, without taking anything away from anybody, I would say I would give it to Sean Whalen because his role of Roach is what I think really tied everything together with it. I mean, yeah, it's an in, like you know, it's an interesting role to have because you gotta. Uh, you have to portray everything without it, without actually saying any dialogue. So I mean, that's that in itself is, is a tough feat. So I mean, I think you're right. I think he does have he kind of have maybe the hardest task. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we got uh, we got of course we got the seven points of uh, Ving Rhames. We can uh, you know how they the seven points of Kevin Bacon. We can break that down with Ving Rhames. So Ving Rhames in Pulp Fiction, also. Uh, the dude who played Zed in Pulp Fiction was also in, uh, you know, Peter Green was also in The Mask. Now, also in The Mask was Jeremy Roberts, who played Spencer in this. <laughs> Seven points of, uh, let's see, uh, was, was, I wonder if Sean Whalen was in anything else that Ving Rhames was in, or that... Uh, Wait, uh, what is the... Seven points thing. I thought it was six degrees. Oh, six degrees or seven degrees of Kevin Bacon? Is that what it's called? Seven degrees? I don't know. Six or seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yeah, six six degrees. Regardless, everyone knew what I was talking about. And yeah, literally, yeah, literally, um, the last second that I'm like, what is seven points? It's an alternative. It's the it's the upside down of the six degrees. I like it. <laughs> um, so here's a question: Is uh, where does this rank uh, in your in your West films? Like where? Uh, like is it your top? I don't. You don't have to name the actual number, but would you say it's like in your top five West films? Um, it would probably crack the top five out of his entire filmography. It's probably. It's probably in the middle of the pack, but that's not taking anything away from it and how much I love it. Right, it's tough because when you have a... I mean, when you have a, a, a catalog like Wes, I mean, come on. Well, that's yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. It's definitely in the top five for me. I would probably... I mean, it's it's so hard um, with Wes, but, I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream, New Nightmare... 
Um, probably. If on the pod, do you think Sean would say Curse is his favorite? That would be very interesting, actually. <laughs> uh, I would probably put um, I would probably put a few of them uh, over this. It might crack the top five, though. I think it would crack the top five for me, yeah. But uh, regardless, it, it was definitely uh, you know, for Wes to, to come out, obviously, five years later, he comes out and, and rebrands the entire genre and recreates the entire slasher genre with scream um we can't forget about these cool gems that we got in between nightmare on elm street and then um you know with with serpent and the rainbow with shocker with people under the stairs you know vampire in brooklyn <laughs> for sure uh, but yeah, what's uh closing thoughts on uh the legacy of uh people under the stairs? I personally think it's uh, a film that holds up to this day, especially when it comes to like I said with the the stuff of race and class and gentrification and uh I think, you know, of all his movies uh, it's maybe one of the ones that speaks the loudest when it comes to social uh, social topics. For um, sure. And, uh, yeah, definitely one of my favorites. What about you, Brian? What's the, what's the legacy for people under the stairs for you? I would – this isn't what you asked me, but I just thought of it in my head. I would rank it number – I think it's my fourth favorite Wes Raven movie. Okay. What's above? Nightmare. What's above that? Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream, and New Nightmare, and maybe The Hills Have Eyes. So it's four or five. I like it. Also, a few things that I wanted to say. Kelly Joe Minter was in Nightmare on Elm Street Five that didn't get mentioned, so that's also Wes Craven related. You know, fun fun little trivia. I mean, and I, I mean, it is, but he had nothing to do with five. No, he didn't. And I stand by my <laughs> that um, mommy and daddy were not sexual with each other. I think that she is like afraid of sex. He wants it, but she doesn't. I mean, they pray before they go to bed, fully clothed. So maybe that's why he... But he also grabbed his crotch before he went to go see Alice, so come on. Well, maybe that's why. Maybe because he's not, you know... He's not getting it for Mommy? Mommy thinks that they'll burn in hell if they have sex. And they're also brother and sister. Well, they're pretty fucked up. I wouldn't put anything past them, but that'll just have to be left in our minds. They're fucked up. You don't have to have sex to be fucked up. I never said that. Oh, Neither did I. And those are my final thoughts on the people under the stairs. Perfect. I have nothing original to say after everything Eric just said. How are your guts? Uh, I I would not like to talk about that while recording, but I'm okay right now. I'm pretty sure I have a tumor in my stomach. Perfect. So on that note, you can find us at HeartGam Media on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on iTunes and Spotify. And uh, 
yeah, check us uh, check us out. Let us know that you're listening. And we shall be back with another episode next week on the Heart God Media Podcast. And this has been Wes Craven's People Under the Stairs. If you have not watched it, I'm sure you didn't listen to this podcast because if you did, we gave away the whole movie and you'll have to backtrack and go watch the entire film and then wonder why 13th birthdays are unlucky anyway. And uh, I mean, it came out in 91, so you had some time. Yeah, 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 exactly. You're behind the ball. So. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Heart Guide Media Podcast. And the FBI do want you and you and